Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you're very welcome. The talk tonight is entitled Philosophy and Measure. The subtitle is that with measure comes health, happiness and rest. So it sounds very attractive at the very outset. And somehow, even if we haven't investigated this topic, we all have a sense of what measure means. When somebody uses the word measure, we do have some inclination as to what it means. And you might appreciate the need for measure. There may be things in your life you wish were more balanced. There may be aspects that you wish you did less of and some aspects you wish you did more of. And it might be in the very obvious areas like diet, exercise, etc. Most people would have some sense of a need in those areas. However, all too often we make resolutions of one kind or another, even maybe at this time of the year, or not so far back, in fact. But in a very short time, we seem to revert back to type. Even the very best resolutions, with lots of enthusiasm and lots of energy behind them, seem to fall short in some way after a very short time. Now, unfortunately, habit is the enemy, and the force of habit is quite strong. So we may survive a week or a month or two months, but the force of habit, if it is allowed to operate, it will and it can overturn what we know to be reasonable. That's one of the most difficult aspects of habit. We can know that something is wrong, but habit will overturn it. Now the principle of measure is that too much of anything brings ill health, and so too does too little of anything. And this subtitle, the offering of health, happiness and rest, they go together. They all come together. Now occasionally we experience these three. We may not be absolutely sure why. It might not be due to our sense of discipline or endeavour. But there are occasions where we do experience the health, the happiness and the rest. And it all just happens together. We may not even question why. We might just enjoy it as such. So what is measure? And why is it so important? It's to do with laws. You could describe them as regulations. And these are the laws and regulations that govern how we interact with the world. So if you think of the day you've just lived, or the week, all the different interactions with the world, between you and the world, measure is the law or regulation governing that interaction. And it's natural and it's nature's way of telling us how to use the creation, how to use the world that we interact with. Now, measure applies to all aspects of the human being, so the physical aspects, or the, the body, the mental, the, the mind, and the third aspect being the heart, or the emotional area. So a measure applies to all three, and we look this evening at all three aspects. Now, every activity or every situation that we find ourselves in has a name or an objective. So the idea is to achieve the aim, we need to understand the regulations or understand the measure. And without the understanding of measure, the aim will not be achieved. The true and substantial aim will not be achieved. Like if you take an example of driving here this evening, there's a way of coming and driving to this venue that's productive of health, happiness and rest. So if you take from the moment you left your home or wherever you've come from, that whole activity of getting into the car, 
making your way here, finding the room, etc. All of that activity can be productive of health, happiness and rest. Or it can be productive of misery and agitation and tension. Now, the very same activity. And we all end up in the room, so it's a little bit misleading because we may not have noticed. And you wouldn't know to look at whether we conducted the activity in such a way that it was productive of rest and happiness or whether we conducted the activity and it was productive of misery and a bit of tension. But you would know. Now, the interesting part of measure is that the, the health and the happiness isn't a promise that comes in the future. So it's not a case if I live a measured life, I will experience health and happiness at some distant time. The health and the happiness and the rest come the moment you apply measure. It comes on the instant. So it's very attractive. So if you behave in accordance with these regulations, the subtitle is delivered on the spot. So there's no waiting. Now, measure works according to law, and the laws work whether we know it or not. So it's a little bit like the law of gravity. It's going to operate whether we like it or not. Whether we agree with it or not is irrelevant. It's just going to operate. Now, this is where philosophy comes in. Philosophy means the love of wisdom. And wisdom is related to knowledge of oneself. If you consult with any religious or philosophical tradition... The study of wisdom is the study of oneself. There's a direct relationship between the two. And oneself is limitless. Measure, however, is to do with the world. It's to do with the creation. And the creation is limited. So measure allows us then to both enjoy the world, the created world that we live in, and it also allows us to transcend it or to be free from it. So it's a, a very important topic to investigate. It has this extraordinary capacity, once we understand it, to both allow us to enjoy the world and to be free of it, to be free of all its entanglements. Now, without measure, we become driven by something. We're driven by appetites or driven by desire. We're bound by the limited, so we're not free. We lack the energy and capacity necessary to evolve the full knowledge of oneself. So it's important to note that measure does not apply to what we truly are. You don't want a measure on love, for instance. You don't want a measure on justice. You can't have too much justice. You can't have too much peace. We would love the totality of peace, limitless peace, limitless happiness, limitless love. And these are aspects of what we truly are in essence so we, we're not interested in measure when we speak of that so when we speak of measure by its very definition we're talking about the created world, the physical world the world that we interact with now we all seem attracted to and drawn to things which we see and hear and come into contact with and the trouble is we don't know where to stop that's the the difficulty with it. Now this stopping point is not negation, it's a positive point. So it sounds like a restriction or a limitation, but it's actually, a, on one hand it's a stopping point, but it's actually a positive point, it's not a, a negative thing. And knowledge of that point is the knowledge of measure. Now, what is not measure? It's a bit like 
If I told you I had someone standing outside the door there that lived a very measured life, and I was going to bring him in here and show him to you, or it could be a lady, you might expect someone quite rigid. You might have in your imagination there someone, they wouldn't be the life and soul of the party. If they lived a very, very measured life, we may have a distorted view of them. And we could associate measure with restriction. We may see measure as a limit, a sort of a party pooper, a limit on my happiness, a limit on my enjoyment. If I lived a measured life, it would be very dull. That sort of idea. I might agree with it intellectually, and if I were to engage in it, it would be like taking cod liver oil. You know, it's something that's good for me, but I don't really want to get too serious about this thing. So these would be erroneous ideas of what measure is, little background ideas, but they do play a part and they do influence how we behave and how we live. So we might admire and pity the poor fellow if I were to wheel him in here and show him to us. Now, this is a false perception and it accounts for why so much of life is both full of confusion and ill measure. And so confused have we become, we may even speak of ill measure in a positive way. So we may even find ourselves boasting about ill measure. Now the older we get, the less we may do this. But if you go back a few years, you may find yourself boasting about things like too much drink, or too little sleep, or too much food, or the last to leave the party, or how we slept all day, etc. Or the money we spent at Christmas, the ferocious amount of money it cost, etc., etc. So we're actually speaking of, if you like, making a mistake. It's like wandering around the place boasting of making a mistake, which is an irony in itself. And it is confusion. And it, it results in a distorted view of what measure is and what it's about. Now, just to turn to what the wise say about measure, it's always good to refer to the words of scripture or the words of the wise in some way. So I have a statement here which is from a teacher referred to as Shankaracharya. This is a teacher whom the school of philosophy has had contact with till his death for maybe 40 years. And during that time many questions were put to him and this is what he had to say on measure. Well this is one of his answers on measure. If one likes to destroy a thing there are two ways to do it. You can use it faster or do not use it at all. Just as a motor car is designed to give service for a certain number of years or mileage within a certain speed, up to 100 miles an hour, it is always recommended to use the car in the medium range only. According to regulations or discipline, one uses things to their full value. Those who do not find the measure and gear themselves to fast actions are misusing the forces. Although the speed of a hundred miles an hour is there, one is not expected to use that speed all the time. The extra energies are used to escape dangers only. It is necessary to find a measure and be contented so that this wonderful body can be used to its last breath in good condition. Just as one needs measure in food and drink, one also needs measure in work. Ignore the measure and burn out your forces. So he's saying that there are, in, it's a simple enough view as well, there are two ways. One, we can overuse or excess and burn things out very quickly, or we can not use things at all. So it's excess or misuse or no use.
both are difficult. Both have a difficulty attached to them. You know yourself if you have a limb out of use for a while. When it is cured and you're taking off the sling, it takes some time to get the arm back to proper and full use again. So we need to discover the natural measures which result in happiness and satisfaction. There's also a hint of a direction as to how in that statement. He mentions discipline. I can just revisit it for a second. According to regulation or discipline, one uses things to their full value. So just to summarise what ground we've covered so far, philosophy and measure then is about discovering the natural regulations which govern how we use this human instrument. They are known only in the moment and they relate to the present time. They relate to right now. They're not fixed. You can't get a book of measures. They're not fixed like a rule book or rigid. They're universal but applied to the particular situation you find yourself in. Nor is it any sort of a casual anything will do based on like or dislike. They have to be individually learned and it's very hard to prescribe so you can't understand and measure with regard to yourself and then try and tell everyone else that's the measure. You can't apply them willy-nilly or at random to whoever you meet. They're very particular to you in particular circumstances. And what may be measured today is not measured tomorrow. What may be measured in one set of circumstances is not the same measure in the same set of circumstances tomorrow. So it's all very fluid. They're very precise, they're simple and they're productive, as we've already said, of health, happiness and rest. So what's the difficulty with living a, a measured life? Or what's the difficulty in all of this? I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but the difficulty in a way is singular. There's only one fundamental difficulty, and it's identification. We identify with the human instrument. So for most of the time, we think we are the body, mind and heart setup, which is the human instrument. And we may not be aware of our essential essence, or we may not consider identifying with essence. We choose, for one reason or another, to identify with the physical, mental and emotional aspect. In fact, that's what we believe we are. So, I believe I'm standing up here talking to you and you're all sitting down there, and you believe you're sitting down there looking at me standing up here. And all the time we're talking about human instruments, the individual aspect. And if I believe I'm a human instrument, then happiness will come from things external. If I think I'm the instrument, the happiness is going to be from the creation for the sake of this instrument. It won't come from myself, it won't come from my essence, it won't, I won't even think of that direction as such. So this mistake, this believing myself to be this entity, creates an overvaluation of the creation. And this sends us off in search of full satisfaction. Now, we're looking for full satisfaction from a creation which cannot provide it. It has never provided it, it will never provide it, and it cannot. If you take any simple interaction with the world, if you take something like eating, a little food does provide satisfaction, a lot of food doesn't provide a lot of satisfaction. 
If you examine every aspect of the world that we interact with, that's the way it is. But if you think you are the instrument, unfortunately we do fall into the trap of believing that the full satisfaction of this instrument will produce happiness. Now with lack of knowledge about true measure, we adopt coarse measures then which govern our life. And the curious thing about this is we adopt coarse measures but we want the fine outcomes. So we would live mismeasured lives but we want the outcomes to be the finest. And I've just got a few little samples or examples here of some of these contradictions if you like. So the one I've mentioned, we eat and expect to stay slim. And I have daughters who are always talking about slimming and I hear them. I hear them all the time talking about you know, what they really want to do is they want to eat and stay slim. That's what they want. And uh, <laughs> they keep talking about things like doing deals with themselves and I'm only having a little now and I won't have a lot later. And there's all sorts of debate going on. But what's behind it is they want to satisfy the eating and they want to stay slim as well, which is the contradiction. They enjoy sleeping in but still want to be on time. And they're quite cross when they're not on time, but they want to sleep in as well. They want to work in a hurried fashion, but they want all the results to have no mistakes. So these are contradictions. In the mind, we think incessantly, and at the same time we would love peace of mind. Peace of mind is at the top of most people's wish lists. But if you look at how we use our minds, it's a lot of thinking, a lot of internal dialogue, a lot of ruminating. Similarly, in the mental area, we may find ourselves not listening, but yet we want to understand. Also, we may engage in worry and try and solve problems. And that is a contradiction, because when you're worrying, the whole problem-solving faculty or aspect of the mind closes down. So it's a direct contradiction. In the heart area, we would all love to be loved, and yet we may find ourselves criticizing people and not necessarily loving everybody, but we would love to be loved. And of course, a fairly common one, we would love not to be judged, but we may find ourselves judging. So these are very common enough examples of where we engage in coarse measure and yet at the same time we want the finest outcomes. Now, no coarse measure will give fine results. It's an impossibility. It's like catching a train for Cork and because we have a ticket for Belfast in our pocket we think the train will take us to Belfast. It doesn't matter how many tickets we have for Belfast if we're on the wrong train, I'm afraid. And when we're using course measure and expecting fine outcomes we're on the wrong train. It's not going to deliver. Practice then creates the enemy and the enemy is, as we mentioned at the outset, is habit. And then in due course, it, this all becomes second nature. It becomes like an artificial way of living, it just becomes part of the way things are. So this artificial way of behaving then is responsible for the lack of measure. And then we're either ruled by excess or a deprivation. So physically, it's excess, like we've mentioned, seeking full satisfaction. Or we may engage in some deprivation, looking for the perfect shape. In the mind, it's incessant thinking, or we may resort to a bit of apathy or lethargy. And in the heart, we're either at the extremes of attachment to people and possessions, or we could find ourselves indifferent to people and possessions. 
And this is this artificial way of living. And it's really based on a collection of ideas. It's not really based on measure at all. But it will never be productive of health, happiness and rest. The fruit of identification is desire. And the difficulty with this is that we see desire and the consequences separately. So very simply, we see the drink and the sore head as two completely separate things. The wise wouldn't see it like that. They would see it together. The consequences and the action they would see as a single unit. They wouldn't be fooled. We keep being fooled. We imagine that when our desires are satisfied, we will be healthy, happy and rested. Now, if we look at our desires, this isn't true. No sooner is one satisfied, then another one pops up. And when that's satisfied, another one pops up. I remember years ago, moving into a, a new house, and there was great delight when we moved into the house. But we were only there a very short time when it will be great when such and such happens. So it will be great when the kitchen is done. And so the whole thing started. And it was be great when went on for years. And it's just continuous, continuous. It'll be great when, great when. And no sooner is one thing satisfied than up pops another one to replace it. And all that's happening is the scenery is changing and the topic of discussion is different. But that desire is just working away. It's insatiable, you see, by its very nature. Like desire just feeds on desire. That's all it does. I don't know if it's obvious, but you can't satisfy desire. It just keeps on going on and on and on. That's its nature. Thinking one day that it will lead to contentment is like saying one day rain will be dry. It's not going to happen. That's just not its nature. And in fact, desire can lead to our destruction. There are lots of examples out there in the world where desire has led to people's destruction and we can see it displayed. Now, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is scripture from the East, there's a very articulate description of what happens with this process of destruction. So if I just read it to you. So this is about desire and destruction. When a man dwells on the objects of sense, he creates an attraction for them. Attraction develops into desire. Desire breeds anger. Anger induces delusion and delusion loss of memory. Through loss of memory, reason is shattered and loss of reason leads to destruction. That's only four or five lines describing the process, moving from dwelling on the objects of sense to destruction. And the only thing that supports that process is habit. There's nothing else that supports it. So we need a solution or a way forward. And in a way, it's simple enough. It's simple enough to, to speak about the solution. It's a, quite a different thing to implement it. And... I'm proposing five aspects to the solution. And the first of these is discipline. And an ill-disciplined character would have little or no chance, really, of introducing measure into their life. Someone who's totally ill-disciplined, it would be very challenging for them. And discipline, like the word measure, discipline has bad press. There's a lot of bad press. The ordinary view of discipline is that it's harsh, hard, or... Uh, imposes an unnatural requirement on situations. If I told you I was disciplining my children, you might think I was talking about punishing them. So we have some ideas about what the word discipline means. 
Now, it's interesting that it has come to mean restrict or limit, or in some cases, as I say, punish. The truth is that discipline is your freedom. In other words, the disciplined person is free from all the erroneous ideas that we have been listing off here. The word itself, one meaning is that it means to follow. And the disciplined chap, if you follow pleasure, that will produce one outcome. However, if you follow measure, that will result in the happiness, the health and the rest. Discipline means moving freely. Now, if you look at anyone in the sporting world, the golfer or the swimmer, it's their adherence to discipline that helps them produce the magnificent performance on the golf course or in the swimming pool or on the football field. If you take out discipline, these performances would not be the same. If you think of the particularly good ones, I'm thinking of Tiger Woods and this type of professional in particular, it's so obvious that discipline plays a very strong part in their work. They wouldn't achieve the level in their sport without discipline. So in order to achieve success in any endeavour, discipline is an essential requirement. Thus discipline grants freedom and really, in a way, discipline ensures that we get the result we want. If you take the simple act of going out for an evening meal, it's always a very simple one to look at. If I were to ask you before you went out, what was your objective or what was your aim going out for an evening meal, what would you say? To eat? Okay, it's a very basic kind of desire. Okay, could we up the ante just a fraction? <laughs> to enjoy yourself, isn't it? Which includes the company and the food and everything that goes with it, isn't it? Okay, so here you are, you set out on an evening to enjoy yourself, enjoy company, enjoy the food, etc. Now, if you don't practice measure on that evening, and there comes a point in the evening where the measure is reached, if you don't practice measure and you overdo it, has that ever happened to you? <laughs> what do you end up with if you go over the measure? Yes, so you could end up feeling quite uncomfortable, couldn't you? At its mildest form, you could end up feeling uncomfortable. At its most extreme, you could end up, you know, suffering for a day or even longer in some cases. So, there you have something that has started off with the idea of enjoyment, and you end up feeling very poorly, in some cases very ill. And the difference in that is understanding measure. The person who's disciplined enough just to follow the measure in those events enjoys the event fully without all the pain and the difficulty, without the pain associated with excess. So it's understanding that point. So the disciplined character is actually free in himself to stop at the right time, whereas the ill-disciplined is a victim. Really, it's, he's just governed by his appetites, or her appetites, as the case may be. So discipline grants freedom. It's freedom to enjoy everything. Now, so that's the first aspect. Without discipline, we, we shouldn't even talk about the rest. And it's to understand it in this simple sense, it means to follow. So it's a case of, what am I following? What's guiding me as I execute all the different actions every day? What am I referring to? Am I referring to a principle? Am I referring to measure? What am I referring to? What do I follow, in other words?
So in addition to discipline, we have awareness, the need for practice, the need to bring reason into the situation, and meditation. So there are four aspects which I'm proposing as part of the solution. Awareness is about being present. Like we can't really appreciate the measure of something if we're not there. It may sound an obvious thing, but we can't really appreciate it. We can't adjust, we can't change, we can't see the error and make corrections. We can do nothing unless we're there. So awareness and being present are essential. And if we're not aware, all our activities will be governed by habit. Just the same old, usual behaviour that I come out with will just happen. Being present is having the bodies, the minds and hearts in one place at one time. And being present can sound a little bit mystical or distant, but it just means that. It means being all together. And someone may have told you in your past, you better put yourself together. It's that type of thing. Be physically, mentally, emotionally, all together. But when we're divided or not present, we have very little choice, very little sense of control over these things. Being present then puts us in a position where we can attend fully to the task in hand and full attention is the key to measure. So the more attention I'm giving to something, the more I understand the measure. I had a drive from Dublin to Roscommon this morning and a drive from Roscommon back to here this evening. Because I'm giving this talk here this evening, I thought I was going to have a really good look from the time I left the front door until the time I arrived here. I was going to look at measure, you see. And what was intriguing was you had a choice. All the time on the journey was a choice. Be at ease and happy and follow the event and enjoy it. Or be tense, impatient, wanting the lights to be green when they were red and wanting people to get out of the way when they weren't, etc., etc., etc. Literally, two types of journey were presented all the time. One was very peaceful and happy and enjoyable and one was tense and full of impatience and expectation. And they were literally right there in front of you all the time. And you could choose, will I be this one or this one? And it's very like that. And then when you arrive at your destination, you're quite happy and refreshed, yet you've driven considerable distance. I was intrigued looking at it today because it was very obvious. True measure is only known in the present. Otherwise, we're moved by desire or we work from habit, either one or the other. So if we don't have measure, we may operate from habitual ideas. And you may recognize some of these, such as physically we need eight hours sleep. You will hear that quoted, you need eight hours sleep. If you don't have eight hours sleep, you can't work. Or three meals a day is necessary for health and you must start your day with a breakfast and all these, and now it's, there's a whole host of other things you have to have every day, one of. But these are just ideas. They may not be true at all. Eight hours sleep might be too much for some people and too little for others. Three meals a day might be necessary for some, but not at all necessary for others. But to have it as a rigid idea and delivering it to everybody would be an error. In the mind, if I don't worry, I won't solve the problem. We've mentioned this one already. And as I've already said, worry stops the problem-solving aspect. In the heart, we have attachment and concern is evidence of love. If I don't show concern, I mustn't love the person. Do you recognize that idea? 
if you look too at ease when someone's telling you a troubled story, you obviously don't care about it. You're supposed to express your trauma and your attachment outwardly. And if you don't, then that's an indication that you don't love. And that may be a long, long way from the truth. In fact, it is a long way from the truth. So, with awareness, we're still discussing awareness, we see more clearly the effects of ill-measure. This is an interesting one because we seem to have a huge tolerance for pain. Because the discomfort of, say, overeating can be something that people repeat once or twice a week. It's uncomfortable. Feel a bit off-colour. And we do it again tomorrow. Then we feel a little bit off-colour on the Saturday and we do it again on the Sunday. Like, it's not like we do it once and then we learn. We keep doing it, which is quite interesting. So just to become aware that ill-measure there's a warning sign all the time, it's telling you. And it's discomfort or pain or tension of some kind. And we can observe the effects of ill-measure in lots of areas. Like we can observe the effects of ill-measure, say, in bad company. We could find ourselves in company that's not very wholesome and repeatedly finding ourselves in that company. Maybe even giving out about it or criticising it, but still finding ourselves in that company. Or, if I just rattle off a few here, sleeping in and being exhausted when we wake up. But we still sleep in and think it's great. Staying out late and at the expense of a whole day, the following day. Or conducting our ordinary work, like, you know, ordinary chores around the house, hoovering or cleaning and tidying in a way that exhausts us. Like some people are hoovering with enough force to rip the pile off the carpet. You know, you're trying to clean your house just before visitors come. Everything can be flung and thrown and pushed and shoved. And by the time they come, you're just sort of an outward... <laughs> but you look okay on the outside. Or simple driving, the amount of force and effort and push and drive that goes into driving a car. And yet it's the car that's designed to do the driving. It's like the car's doing 60 miles an hour and we're doing 60 miles an hour separately. Now, without awareness, it's impossible to observe all these things. We could find our bodies riddled with tension, just sitting on a chair attending a lecture. And there's zero need for it. But we could find that the amount of force and effort that goes into things is grossly unnecessary. So that's awareness. The idea is that, in essence, without awareness there can be no real change. You can't begin to introduce change, or you can't begin to see the ill effects of ill measure. So it becomes a very important one. The second part of the solution is practice. And resolution can have a powerful effect here. It can have a very useful effect in breaking habits, or establishing a new practice of some description. Now some habits seem harder to break than others, but no habit is bigger than yourself. No habit is unbreakable, if you know what I mean. People either fail to keep or even make resolutions because of a, a single idea that the challenge is just too much. Sometimes you're making a resolution and it all appears too big. It's like seeing the whole year ahead and we fall at the first hurdle because of this. Like you would lose heart. If you think of trying to do something for a year, you'd lose heart very fast. It's a sort of knowing I'm going to fail, even while trying to make the resolution. 
The only time to practice acting or refraining from action is in the present. Like the only time you can diet is when a plate of food is in front of you. All the mental exercise is a waste of time. Now there are two types of resolution. There are those that fail and those that succeed. The resolutions that fail are those that are made. The ones that succeed are received. So there's a distinction between the two. Resolutions that are made are based on ideas of right and wrong. They revolve around ego or me. Me who's trying to achieve something and they will fail. They last for a while but ultimately they will fail. Those that succeed are received. They come to you. They're an appreciation of a real need. It's like suddenly really understanding something. Those resolutions succeed. And anyone who's ever given up smoking or any of those things knows the difference between those two. Because you can be making resolutions for years and they don't succeed. And suddenly one day the real need is appreciated and the cigarettes stop. And that's the end of it. So they're quite different and very useful to get a sense of the difference between those two. Now there's also some practices. Practices in themselves aren't measure. So the purpose of practices is to help us discover measure. Measure is something that we discover. But the idea is to have some instructions to practice which help us discover what measure is. So that's what these are about. And it's important to understand that instructions and rule are never above reason. You can have instructions and rule and think they should apply at every circumstance, but they can't. So it's important not to allow instructions to override reason. Reason is necessary to know how to apply the universal to the particular. Now if I take some examples, to control the quantity and quality of food, we need to taste our food. The measure is discovered in the taste. Without taste, that whole process is impelled by something else, a habit or desire or some idea. But it won't be measure, it'll be something else. We don't realise we've overdone things until it's too late. I remember speaking to a man one time who said that he realised that he shoveled his food from his plate into his tummy and he never tasted it, ever. And another man said one day that he discovered through taste that he hated coffee. He'd been drinking coffee for years. And he said it wasn't until he tasted the coffee that he realised he hated it. Which is very good, very strong, but very good. It's not possible to work from measure with food if we don't taste the food. So tasting is the mechanism. And we all have that mechanism. And by applying it then, the right quantity and type of food would then go into these bodies. So it's very nice and neat that we all have this mechanism here that controls it all. So taste is the measure. Eat fresh food in season, taste what you eat, and eat what you like. No grazing. We're the only creature that interferes with eating. In other words, an animal would naturally adhere to measure. You don't often see an overweight dog. <laughs> I mean, struggling to get up. And, you know, talking to fellow dogs and <laughs> saying, we better go on a diet. <laughs> 
they don't seem to have that difficulty. The human being has that difficulty. The human being can decide to live according to a complete lack of rule and regulation or complete lack of discipline. So all creatures naturally adhere to measure. We're the only creature that interferes and we either use coarse or fine measures but we can interfere with it. So that's eating. The trouble with sleep is that we tend not to go to bed when we should and we tend not to get up when we should. So it's like we make a little mistake at both ends. Now this mistake goes on for a long time. Years and years and years. Sleeping in, getting out, being a little bit grumpy, then doing exactly the same day after day. To bring measure to sleep, again, it's like the taste. Taste your food is not a restriction. It's just everyone uses that instruction. The measure of food will be different for everyone. It's the same with sleep. To bring measure to sleep, we simply practice going when tired and getting up when you wake up. And it may not need too much explanation, but the second part of that's much harder than the first. <laughs> My mother used to say, I never realized how wise she is until I looked at this one day. She said, nature gives five. This is referring to sleep. Nature five, custom seven, laziness nine, and wickedness eleven. That's talking about the hours of sleep. Now, the measure of sleep is not eight hours of sleep for everybody, every man, woman and child. That's just an idea that's come from somewhere and that we've all picked up and think it's a good one. And the trouble with that is that it's a very strong idea and you can actually think if you don't get, you know, your eight hours sleep you'll be exhausted and if you keep thinking that way you will actually be exhausted because thinking has its effect. So that practice is given to try and help discover what is the natural measure of sleep for you as an individual, what's the precise measure? You go when tired, and you see this in children. Children go, at the moment they're tired, they fall asleep. Even if it's sitting on the stairs, they just fall asleep. They're not interested in getting up the last part of the stairs as such. And that's very challenging, go when tired, because we want to stay up. We like that little stay up. And the other end, as I said, is even more difficult. Get up when you wake up. Now, there's a very interesting thing to watch. When you wake up in the morning and you're sleeping in, what do you think you're doing? You're resting. But what's actually happening? Lazy. Yeah, and what's happening in the mind? Just dreaming and thinking, etc. Dreaming, thinking, and it depends on the day, but what I must do and what I should do. You could even be conjuring up all sorts of negatives about the day and also, oh God, I don't want to meet so-and-so. So, there you are. On one hand, you are sleeping in, so-called, having a rest, so-called, but really, what are you actually doing? You could yeah. <laughs> You could. You could be lying there thinking, this is great. The rain belted the window outside. Yeah, but either way, you're talking to yourself. <laughs> There's no Yeah. How do you know? <laughs> so... The measure with sleep is go when tired and get up when you wake up. And if you practice that then and see what happens. I would encourage the get up when you wake up one, big time. So the moment you wake up, up you get. Little children do it naturally, unfortunately. <laughs> but we beat them back into the bed and we teach them and they end up just like us. But initially, they're just magnificent. They wake up, they get up. They're playing with Wellingtons at six in the morning.
And if you notice, they don't get up and wander around the place lethargically for a few hours until they come to, you know. Yeah, you don't see a little child going, don't talk to me till I've had me coffee. <laughs> and when a mother is up with a child, I'm often intrigued that the next day you could be hearing the mother referring to it a lot. The last person you'd hear referring to is a little child, or you wouldn't see it displayed in the child. They'd be just running around, tearing the house apart, so we don't go off the track too much. The measure for sleep is go when tired, get up when we wake up. If you insist on drinking alcohol, then heat is the measure. One draught above heat makes you a fool. So that's when the body temperature is that warm, glow, heat. That's the measure for alcohol. And that would vary greatly. If you were outside in the snow, you'd need a lot more alcohol to produce that. So again, it's a single rule that would be different for everybody. In the same way as the sleep and the same way as the food. So one draught above heat makes you a fool, two makes you mad, and the third will drown you. And if you look at alcohol, you will see those three stages. They're from Shakespeare, those three, if you want to know their origin. But if you look at alcohol and the effect it has, you'll see the foolishness coming in. Once you go over the point of measure, and then the other two aspects, the madness and the drowns, well, that would take different forms with different people, but you can see it displayed very easily. So, moving on to work, the day should be full of variety, and the day is a unit. So nine hours work. Again, these are not rules. They're meant to help us look at measure. Some people might only work four. Some people might work 12. So it's a matter of looking at it. One hour's meditation three hours restful activity and four and a half to six hours sleep and it says here the rest is for recreation and meals now if you add nine and one that's ten thirteen three and four and a half to six let's say you go for five hours sleep that's what eighteen is it so six hours apart from that for eating and recreation and magnificent isn't it but I don't know if our day would feel like that. Our day might feel like, you know, you go to bed and you get up and you work and you go to bed. I'm not sure. It might be good to examine what the day is like. Is it a case of just go to bed and, you know, get up and go and work and then come home and go to bed? Does it have that feel to it? Is there time for recreation? Is there time for study? Or restful activity? Three hours restful activity every day. Should be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> Apart from sleep and work, yeah. To bring measure to the mental areas, the idea is to attend to one thing at a time. And interesting that the task tells you the measure. Quite often we would approach a task with a sense of our own understanding of measure. Have you ever seen yourself getting up on a Saturday morning and thinking you're going to do this, 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 this and this all before lunch? <laughs> And you have something else planned for the afternoon. You're going to a rugby match or something. But by lunchtime, you're only halfway through the first this, whatever that was. You're only halfway or a quarter way through something. So we can have our own ideas of measure. And all they can be is literally just ideas, literally little notions about things. But the actual measure is in the job itself. And the trouble when we're doing work, if we have the measure in our own minds as ideas, we often try and apply them and then real trouble starts.
you are trying to paint a door that's going to take an hour and a half and you are trying to do it in 20 minutes and that has consequences for unfortunately the finished product and you and probably the family so it's very good to recognize that in any job the measure is in the work itself it's not something that's in you as such it's something that we have to discover when we're doing a task rather than we bring it to the task does that make sense so every single task we embark on like driving home tonight the measure of that whole activity is in the drive itself you may want to get home at a certain time but that's irrelevant what's relevant is that the task will take and have certain measures the emotional aspect is respond fully to the need in front of you so what is the need right now is if you like a very simple tool for establishing the measure as to, in terms of your emotional response to things ill measure is often related to preferences so we may find ourselves putting off work phone calls to make we put them off things to do put them off and that would be working on the basis of preference like and dislike but what is the need right now dislodges all that type of thinking now speech when there is speaking there should be listening simple measure whenever the speech they should be listening so right now the speech isn't there and you should be listening if you're doing anything else you're interfering with that measure so you could be off thinking about what you're going to be doing later which would be interfering so when there is speaking they should be listening speak the truth pleasantly rather than the pleasant untruth we may find ourselves inclined to say one thing but think slightly differently so we say yes when we mean no we say we'll be over on Saturday when we mean we won't be there at all on Saturday so we find ourselves embellishing and changing and twisting what's true in an effort to please people possibly or some idea of trying to keep people happy but it ends up as just a very complex way of behaving and if we're speaking pleasant untruth we have to have a very good memory we have to manage it all very well so it becomes a very complex area so the measure with regard to speech is truth pleasantly so we say what's true but we keep it pleasant and the measure for life is no more than we need any excess is a burden a simple and inexpensive life so excess is a burden I think it was Spike Milligan, I'm not sure if it was Spike Milligan who said that he did understand that money didn't bring full satisfaction, or wealth wouldn't bring full satisfaction, but he would like an opportunity to prove it. <laughs> I often think we're a little bit like Spike. There's a kind of a knowing that, you know, a lot of wealth wouldn't bring satisfaction, but we all wouldn't mind an opportunity to prove it. It might be an expensive opportunity. So there are just some practical directions to work with the third element is to strengthen reason now for the mind to be governed by reason it first needs to stop the more coarse activities so for example we need to stop squandering our energies on the speculation worry and a host of other useless activities which we normally refer to as thinking I'm thinking about things when really all we're doing is ruminating and mulling over stuff we have opinions about every subject and we defend these regardless as to whether they are true 
or false. We seem more interested in whether they are mine or not. You'd see this out socially. You could find yourself defending some idea. And you could defend it to the death. It could be a religious idea or philosophical or a political something about this new treaty now that we're going to be talking about, etc., etc. And you could be out there fighting and defending to the death. And you may or may not understand the subject. All you're just doing is defending it. <laughs> For the mind to become more reasonable, it must exchange the diet of confusion. So the idea is that the mind needs to be still more often. The mind works best when it's still. So instead of launching into all sorts of thinkings when we're presented with things, we should try and practice being more still, bring the mind to stillness more often. There's no such thing as a still, stupid mind. No such thing. So when the mind is still, intelligence works. When the mind is agitated, anything can happen. Even the very intelligent person can behave unreasonably when mind is agitated. Reason is strengthened by adherence to principle. We need to live a principled life and subject all our desires to analysis. Like, for whose sake is this action? What would be the outcome of this action? Consider and bring consequences to the forefront of mind. We could ask, what would a wise man or woman do in these circumstances? Or, what would I advise my best friend to do in these circumstances? These are ways of just bringing a greater sense of reason to mind instead of being governed by preferences and likes of one kind or another. The fourth element in the solution is meditation. And I'm not an authority on lots of different types of meditation, so I'm only just talking about one particular type, which is mantra meditation. And it's a simple most effective method of bringing firstly the stillness that we spoke of to the mind meditation connects directly with that stillness within each of us it also works in a way to dissolve the habits and tendencies in our nature that compel us to act in a nil measured way so whatever little habitual tendencies I have to behave in one way or another that's not useful meditation dissolves those tendencies and it's quite marvellous because you don't have to even know how it works. Meditation will just dissolve those tendencies. For example, if you're an impatient person, meditation will bring about a transformation from impatient to patient, provided you meditate with good faith and regularly. That impatient tendency will just be dissolved. And so too would all of the tendencies in nature. Now, why seek to live a measured life? The effects of a measured life are, as the subtitle suggests, health, happiness and rest. And by health we mean a sense of well-being, having a healthy body, mind and heart. A healthy body is free from tension and enjoys all activities in rest. A healthy mind is free from confusion, racing thoughts and is governed by reason. It enjoys stillness, clarity, certainty and is decisive. A healthy heart is open, full of love, and responds naturally to the needs of others. It is generous, peaceful, sees the good everywhere, and is satisfied. A more important reason is that man is conscious. The human instrument is like a machine. 
man himself is conscious. And like any instrument, well cared for, offers longevity for the body, efficiency in the mind and openness in the heart. In a way, measure is like really looking after the instrument properly, like we would look after a brand new car, looking after it really well so that it works well. Measure is really concerned with the real aim. At the opening of this talk, measure was the key to two things, we said, namely the enjoyment of the creation and transcending the creation. True enjoyment means freedom, complete freedom, and no attachment to things physical, mental or emotional. So it's like being fully involved without the burden, fully engaged without any of the difficulty. The discovery of this freedom opens the way to discover oneself. Then we discover what is beyond measure, which is limitless love, limitless wisdom, limitless freedom and limitless peace. Without measure, we're trapped, really, in the world. We're trapped in the creation. It's like being a slave to the creation. With measure, we transcend the limited and open this door to self-discovery. And making this discovery of oneself is the true purpose of our life. Thank you very much. Thank you. to ask a question, we have to use the microphone. You won't hear any amplification. It's not for amplification purposes. It's for recording purposes. Is that okay? So, it's really over to you to open up any questions or any ideas at all you'd like to raise about what was presented, about this whole subject of measure. Yes, I'd like to ask a question about sleep. Yes. My youngest son you know, has always been what I would consider to be a night owl. Yeah. Couldn't get him to bed at night and then wouldn't be able to get him up in the morning. Yeah. And what you were saying about sleep was, you know, you go to sleep when you need to sleep and get up when you wake up. When you wake up. Yes. But how does that work with the world, the way we work in the world, basically? You know, he had to be up for school in the morning, he has to be up for college now and so on, you know? So he has to operate within the constraints of how the world is is ordered. I'm not sure how the world is playing a part there insofar as... What do you mean by the world? Well, the way school starts at nine o'clock. Yeah. So, so you have to get up in time for school. Yes. So there must be an appropriate time for him to go to bed at night and an appropriate time for him to get up in the morning. But what if he does go to sleep until two in the morning or three in the morning? He's not able to go to sleep until that time. Okay. I mean, there may be other factors at play. There's an interesting element to this. Quite often there's a lot of difficulty at the going to bed stage, at the going to sleep stage, and then it's exacerbated by the sleeping in aspect. I agree. All right, so the thing to start practicing is the get up when you wake up. That's the single direction that you would practice that starts to regulate all this and all this. Yes, but is that not interfering with the way his body clock operates? Because I, I remember hearing about a study that was yes. done on people who are night owls, basically. Night owls, you yes. have night owls and then you've got morning people. Yeah. And the, the world works better for people who are able to get up in the morning and they feel tired at the right time at night, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, yeah. and they get their quota of sleep. But the world isn't 
designed for the night owls, basically, you know, unless they all want to do night duty in hospitals or whatever. Or yes. Exactly. Well, you see, whatever about being a night owl, a lot of that aspect, like night owl, morning person, etc., they can be all acquired, number one. They're not necessarily an absolute part of someone's nature. So, for instance, someone can talk themselves into being a morning person or a late person, an evening person, I'm only useful at this time. You can actually talk yourself into all of that. And also, how old is this person you're talking about? He's 20 now. Yeah, well, really, he should be here asking the question in a way. If you go home and start banging this out to him, you could be in trouble. So. <laughs> I have been banging this out yeah, well, for I 20 years. <laughs> right, well, you see, <laughs> I'm really afraid to say any more. Now, if you want to bring regulation into sleep, you bring the get-up when you wake up, you start to work with that one and you see what implication that has and effect that has on the whole situation. It's also very difficult to take one of these measures out and apply it to somebody else, which is what you're asking, really. You're mm -hmm. asking about some other human being's sleeping patterns. Mm -hmm. I'd caution you going home and start talking about this, unless he's interested. But this is one aspect of measure. But you also have to apply this to the whole day. Why is it that people don't go to sleep easily. You see, if you spend the whole day using the mind in a, a very erratic, ruminating, thinking, speculating kind of way, and then you lie down at whatever time it is, 11 p.m., you can't expect the whole thing to shut down at your behest. Oh, I'm lying down now, I'd like my mind to be nice and quiet and go to sleep. That's not the way it works, is it? No. If you want to talk about measure, one aspect is bringing measure to sleep, which is the get up when you wake up and go when tired. But how you use the mind throughout the day has a, an effect on the, all of that process. So the time you are here between waking up and getting up, that has implications. All that thinking and speculating plays out as a pattern, as part of the day and then the day gets going. So the whole thing is all connected. It's very hard to single out and say, just practice that one thing. So for example, the more you appreciate some sense of rest during the day, the more natural it will be the going to sleep at night, and the easier it will be to practice get up when you wake up. It's all interconnected. But for some people that comes easier than Oh yes, other, there would be natural leanings and mm, yes. you know, little mm. tendencies in our behaviour. Whether they are natural or acquired in a way doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. There are definitely tendencies in our behaviour. Mm. And you know, I could even say that. I would be in far better early in the morning than late at night working. There's no doubt about that. But within the system it's nearly irrelevant about all of that. The get up when you wake up and the go when tired if you like, self-regulates all that. It starts to govern it, and it starts to come right. But I'd be very cautious about asking that question for someone else. <laughs> I was at my lecture this evening, and here's what you <laughs> Trouble. Yeah, well, I'd have to agree with Margaret, because I know, say, for getting up, I check the time when I actually wake up naturally. Yes. And in the winter, it's 20 past eight. Yes. That's when I wake up. 
Now, 20 past 8 is too late for me to be getting up when I'm going to work. That's my natural time. So I resent very much the fact that I have to have an alarm clock to wake me up. Right. An hour before, I would go to bed at the same time. I'd get plenty of sleep. But my natural waking time would be 20 past 8. I've been amazed at that. I see. So I've woken up at 20 past 8. And now with the summer coming in, I go back an hour. So it's, I'm waking at 20 past, between 7 and 20 past 7 now. Okay. Naturally. Okay. That may be your natural time. Yeah, but that makes it difficult for the measure. <laughs> you see, I do think this morning thing, not a morning person, I don't do getting up early right. at 7 o'clock. Okay, 20 past 8 is a good time and any time after that. And I've always thought that the people who are morning people, like you've said, you have, have got a huge advantage That's true. over the people like us. Yeah, absolutely. You've started the day, you've even got the work day yeah. to start, start for you. That's right. Yeah, you're way ahead. And I'd be happy to stay and work until 7. I'd start working well at four. Oh work. dear, Seriously. right. <laughs> okay. You know, I could yeah. do that. And even yeah. on a Friday, I'd be happy to stay and work on Fridays late right. rather than leave. Now, why are we looking at these things? Why are we looking at something like measure, measure. in something like sleep, for example? Just so we don't lose the track of it. Mm -hmm. Happiness and rest. Health, happiness and rest. And also... The idea is that measure helps us to enjoy the creation and go beyond, and go beyond us. You see? So what we're talking about here on the surface sounds like we're just talking about, you know, a couple of light rules about going to sleep at night, which is one way of looking at this. But the real purpose for looking at this is to be free from this sleep and bed, to be able to be free to get up when you want to get up, in fact, get up 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, to be free from the tendency. It's like being free from the appetites. Does it make sense that to be free from, say, things like having to have eight hours sleep a night, mm. to be free mm. from having to have three meals a day, some idea of having three mm. meals a day, to be able to look at food and not become as kind of a victim of a green bun, that's not very free. The aim, and one of the main reasons for looking at measure, is this freedom. It's not to introduce some nice rules into how we live, in a way. It's not really, that's not the real purpose. The real purpose is freedom. Like, any time you follow a discipline, which is what we're talking about here, so any time you follow a discipline, there's a little discipline of maybe stopping with regard to eating or getting up, on awakening, you're suddenly free from the grip of those things, the food, the sleep, the whatever, so you're free at that point. So that point of discipline is a point of freedom. It's like you're completely free from ego and ideas and what you think you need and, or don't need, etc. I have to sleep in, I, I need more rest and all these things. So you're just free. Any practice of discipline will bring that experience of freedom. That's the real purpose. Very hard to prescribe for someone else. The discipline possibly is the job you have to go to or whatever you have to get up for. Now, the discipline referred to here is the discipline in yourself. What are you actually following? Are you following measure or are you following pleasure? If you're following pleasure, it's like being a puppet. You're in the grip of a desire to stay in bed, for want of a better way of describing it. 
But if you're able to get out of the bed, you're not in the grip of that. Do you recognize that when you do get up, if you've slept in, let's say you've slept in a little bit too long, what's it feel like? Yeah. Why? What do you say to yourself? You're not free. You're not free. What are you? Well, you've overstepped the mark to a certain extent. And yes. why is it not a happy experience? Why is it not full of joy and bliss and happiness? Because you know you should have been up 20 minutes ago or however long ago you should have been up. You've been, you know, like a little puppet to the idea mm -hmm. of staying in bed. And in that sense, what you say is accurate. You're not free in that moment. And you know you've done it. It's like this sense of knowing what is the right course of action, but it's too late. It's in hindsight, which is never very useful, unfortunately. The disciplined person is free to leave the bar or stay in the bar. The ill-disciplined person is trapped in the bar. He can't leave the bar. There's a big difference. The disciplined person can stay at the party. They can be the last person standing. But they're not being controlled by anything other than themselves. And they're completely free to go or stay. Like when you can just stop at the right time, at that point you're just free. When you can't, you're suddenly being controlled by a plate of pasta, or whatever it is. I noticed during the day today on these two drives, pulling back and letting people in is complete freedom. You're in control, you're in charge, you're right there speeding impatiently along the road, trying to keep everyone out. You're a lunatic being driven by some desire to get somewhere quickly. And they're two very different states. One you arrive exhausted, the other you arrive happy. I think I'm a bit of an optimist about how long it's going to take me to get somewhere, or how long it takes me to get up, in, not the getting up part of it, but in the morning, how long to get out the door. So while I'm thinking about how long to give, I think oh, I can do that in 10 or 15 minutes. Exactly what you said earlier, I think I've worked it all out, but it actually takes me always much longer. So yeah. how do I remind myself <laughs> to, to give it a bit more time? Well, just why not just try experimenting? Experiment tomorrow. So if this is a habitual pattern of behavior, you know, you get up at a certain time, you think you're going to master everything within a certain time, you see every day, you don't quite manage it. You know, it's, it's nearly self-explanatory in a way. Experiment. What time do you rise in the morning? About ten. I'm, not, I'm a night owl and I've... <laughs> I'm a night owl and I've recently moved to working from afternoons to evening. Uh, just strike that from the lecture, really, please. Uh, the lady didn't say ten, she meant six. I know. Ten. Right. Okay, so you <laughs> okay. I think you need to experiment. <laughs> just experiment. I wouldn't be asking just for applying for the morning. For we... setting to get somewhere in the evening. For All right, very good. People. Just measuring yes. that time of... I yeah, just going out to meet someone, you only allow a small amount of time. I can my keys and get everything organised. Yeah, and what's the effect of that? Stress. Stress, that's it. That's the price tag. So. We can think all we like. We can think we know the measure of something and we're going to apply it to the thing, but we suffer the consequences. It's like what was said. Measure is like the law of gravity. You can't ignore it. You suffer the consequence if you ignore it. 
So it's a matter of discovering the measure in these activities, like going out somewhere, going to meet people. There is a certain measure to getting dressed. And you see it in you know, anything, going to the airport, any activity. You can do all these things in a way that is really very restful, or it's absolute pandemonium. It's a very, very heavy price tag. And there's nothing wrong with sitting around an airport for an hour reading a book. There's nothing wrong with being ready on time to have another cup of tea before you go out. There's, I mean, it doesn't have to be all, you know, jammed into some idea we have of time. But experiment. Does it make sense that measure isn't rule and regulation? It's something we discover. Which won't be something you could write down even. It is a virtuous way to live. Well, if the promise is true in particular, it would be productive of health, happiness and rest. Mm -hmm. Like when do we think we're going to have a rest? When do you tell yourself you're going to have a rest? Weekend. Yeah. We tell ourselves we're going to have a rest at the end, don't we? Mm -hmm. So we say things like, I'll have a rest on Friday, I'll mm -hmm. have a rest tomorrow, I'll have a rest next week. When are all those times I'm referring to? In the future. In the future. You've got to look at this. What actually happens then when the so-called weekend comes? It's filled up with other stuff and we forget that we said we'd have the rest on the weekend. And quite often the weekend disappoints. So you head off back into work on Monday and there's a disappointment there. The weekend didn't quite deliver what I was expecting. Do you recognize that? Mm -hmm. Well, there's something wrong, folks. And how long is this going on for? <laughs> this has gone on for years. Now, there is something fundamentally wrong that we can tell ourselves we're going to have a rest here and when here comes no rest there's no rest there at all there's a bit of relief maybe because all the activity of the day has stopped but the lovely rest and relaxation and peace that we seek we conjure up we think it's going to happen here but it doesn't actually happen the sad part of that equation is that the rest is available here, 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 here. It's available all the way through. So it's available now. And all of the nows, if you know what I mean, all of the now along there. It's never something that arrives in the future. Like we could be sitting here thinking it would be great when I get home, isn't it? Desperate Housewives starts at 20... It'll be great. It'll be marvellous when I get home this evening. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be marvellous. I hope he stops in time just to go inside for Desperate Housewives. And we could drive home letting that govern and it'll be an unrestful drive and then we'll get in and squeeze in the old desperate housewives and, and the whole thing just rolls on. But there are times now when you would indulge, you know, go out for a night and, and not be governed by measure <laughs> and feel very, maybe, happy the next day. That can happen. You there can say, be. well, I'm suffering now, but it was a great night. <laughs> I mean, that can happen. Yes. No, you're right can be like that. Mm. But I'm not sure, can you describe that as real freedom and the happiness and the rest that we seek, the odd 
the so-called enjoyment from a, a night in some way. Is that what we're seeking? What are we seeking? Well, sometimes during a night like that, there could be a time where you get the buzz or... Spontaneity. Yes, yeah, spontaneity. Hmm. There's a time when you're going, gosh, this is just brilliant. You're really yeah. having a ball. You feel great. Yeah. With people, you're enjoying the company. Yeah, that's fine. Mm. That's to be enjoyed and... Absolutely, that is to be enjoyed and it's very natural to be enjoyed, the good company and... Yeah, it's fine. And sometimes it, it does happen by accident. We do get it right by accident. But for most of the time, it's not. Those moments, they're not common. They can be quite rare, what you're describing. If what we're looking for is a, a little bit of fun from a good night out, well, that's a different lecture, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> that's philosophy on how to have a good time or something. We know how to do that. <laughs> but, and, you know, there's all sorts of substances helping you, etc., etc. <laughs> I mean, if you stop for a moment and look on a serious note, to fully realize the, the wise are happy in every circumstance. They're fully at ease, they're fully spontaneous, fully happy in all circumstances. They don't need the odd special moment with a few glasses of wine and good friends once every six weeks or whatever it is. It's to be really happy all the time, which is what the aim is really. To be free all the time, to be happy all the time, to be at rest all the time. Without any requirements externally. Like, could we be happy in all company? It's unlikely. Yeah. Why? Well, everybody's different. Yeah, but why couldn't we just be happy with whoever's there? It could be. That's what we're talking about, really. We're really talking about <coughs> upping the ante a little. What's I your problem, right? I mean, your presence is a child to, you know, don't be happy for 364 days a year because it's going to be your birthday on the 365th day of the year. So yes. we're programmed to sort of postpone our happiness all the time for some other time this yeah. happiness is going to arise. And I think we just sort of carry on that habit. Until you sort of examine it in this type of situation, yeah. uh, then you've some chance of changing it. So I suppose the awareness, which is your point number two, is a huge part of that. I think the question that I was going to ask was that the talk was excellent. In the cold light of day in this room, and in the cold light of day in our own hearts, we all know what you're saying is correct. The problem is that life seems to get in the way of actually enacting those type mm. of things. And the question that I was going to ask you was, for example, I meditate. So, uh, you know, for about 15 minutes after meditation, I'm, you know, nice and calm and I'm dealing with everything. And sort of in the middle of the day, I get agitated. And when I get agitated, I sort of then lose the whole reference back to the point. And that's what seems to happen in life. You lose <coughs> the reference back because something has agitated you out of being able to even be aware of your situation, and yeah. I'm trying to make sense of this, no, and the, the, the question I have is, are there any techniques to sort of keep you grounded in, in the good stuff, mm. and not let the other stuff sort of overtake you, where you become sort of an autopilot person living through the day, I suppose yeah. that was the question. Well certainly the meditation is the master key, so, I mean if you're meditating twice a day, very hard to find a better practice than that as a, a foundation, if you like. But there are other things. I mean, there is investigation of what you're doing. So there's nothing stopping you investigating 
like what you're describing there, why does that happen? Why allow that to happen? You're able to describe it perfectly. Why not have a good look at this and introduce an, an element of choice in the situation? Now, we do have a choice. Like I was saying, you can choose to drive in a way that is productive of tension and misery, or you can choose to drive in a way that's productive of happiness. Now, the trouble with this is that habit will and can override what we know to be reasonable. Yes. And it does. So you can become agitated and at the same time know that this shouldn't be happening type of thing. It's like a knowing somewhere in the background. And habit can be so strong that it overrides that. So the idea is to find some ways of breaking habit. Well, that's sort of the question that I'm asking. Because the other effect if that you'll be very worried about is that you start this commentary in your head analyzing all actions where you sort of end up talking to yourself all day yes, no. and you're actually totally bad by the yes. way yeah. which is really a very worrying thing to do and can you know, can start out. Well, I can give you a little, a little technique. This is specifically for breaking habits. You ready for this now? Now, that's a particular little technique. It's a little practice. For everybody, this will be very different. At any moment in time, you're faced with options all the time. One will appear very easy and attractive, and that's the one that habit sends you down. Right? One will appear hard. Do you recognize this? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, a good example is if you're working in an office, you may have received some information and you have to go and address somebody about it or speak to someone about it, it might be a little bit difficult. The easy option would be to send an email. Is that right? What's the hard option? That's the one to do. When you wake up tomorrow morning, the easy thing will be to? The hard thing? Now, if you want a, a direction to work with, now this is not necessarily an easy practice, but it is a very simple mechanism. And you're meeting it moment by moment. Do I go the easy option or the hard option? And the hard one is the right one to go. It's that type. That's the habitual, easy, there's an inevitability about it, safe. So if you want to break habit, you can add that to your armory. Hard is the good. Like right now, for someone in the room, it would be very hard to listen here now because Desperate Housewives <laughs> is preferred. That's true. And it might actually be there in the mind. You know, hurry up, come on. You see? It could be that way. No, I know. But it could be. So, in that instant, the hard is just to stop that and just listen and pay attention here. That would be the hard option. And that's the right one to do. So I should go home and watch Desperate Housewives? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's, it's, it's whatever's the easy option, that's the one to leave. Whatever's the easy one. Oh, I see. Oh, that's the point, yeah. <laughs> that would be taking instruction and, no, no, turning it around in an unuseful way. Do you get a sense of this? Yeah. It's every moment you have this little choice in front of you. Easy, hard, and that's the right track. And it'll be very particular to you. It won't be anyone else's. Nobody else could tell you what it is. Because you're the only one that knows. 
when you're sending the email or you're choosing the easy option. Does that make sense? Yeah. Nobody else is going to know looking at you. Yeah. Just as well. <laughs> the stillness and the peace that comes with meditation, you can connect with that more often. So, the practice of the exercise, the senses exercise you've been given, pausing between activities. And then the peaceful action becomes more efficient. Yes, it becomes like if identification with the human instrument is our problem, we need to identify more with essence. We need to identify more with the awareness and the stillness and that aspect rather than the, the instrument aspect. You know that rest that we hope we're going to get at the end here we spoke of earlier, where do you think that rest is or when is that rest available? Always. Yeah. So it's always there. We've covered over. Firstly, the very fact that you're asking the question indicates an appreciation of the need, which is the first thing. You have to appreciate the need for what you're talking about. But something along these lines, you know, practicing with this and and realizing that we keep fooling ourselves and talking about the rest in the future, try and introduce some rest into the day. There's no law against meditating for 15 minutes at lunchtime. In fact, for the interested, I would recommend it. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning, uh, Brian, I must say, in, in the group that we're in, and, you know, over the various terms of philosophy that you're asked to perform your practices during the week and they are to take rest during the day and people come back the following Wednesday and everybody goes what are we asked to practice no but I didn't I couldn't I never got the chance and yeah you know it seems to be so unnatural to, yeah. to take this pause yeah. and yet it's funny how you know like hard is the good in the truest sense of the word hard is the good there yeah but it seems really impossible once life starts yeah. That's what I'm saying, when meditation finishes in the morning time, life yeah. starts and then it goes on until you do it again in the evening time. And that's the difficulty, really. Yeah, no, so, and you're not on your own. Yeah. Excuse me, surely the exercise is now long. It's no big deal, like a couple of minutes. It's less, it can be seconds. But still, it's quite a challenge just oh, to... Yes, I agree. You know, I agree, but if you do it, I mean, surely you don't have to meditate for 15 or 20 minutes. No, but you could do. You could, yes. Um, in other words, I'm just saying that if you wanted to, you could do. Yeah. There's no law against it, in other words. Mm. <laughs> but also, especially, I've been practicing this idea of getting up when you wake up. Right, you have been? Yes. All right. Mm. Uh, but I, I got it from a golf book. Ah. And apparently Gary Clare has his way of doing things every day. He's up at seven. Right. He shaves. He has a bath, a hot bath, as hot as you can imagine. Then a cold shower. Yeah. Wash the hair, do everything, all that. And I've tried that, and you feel fantastic. Yeah, very good. Really good. Yeah, no, very good. Really good. These things are all a challenge, but nothing is bigger than you are. Nothing is bigger. And everything gives way eventually. Meditation is certainly a good foundation, and then some sense of resolve, examine what you're doing, practice hard as the good, and there's more. There's no end to the practices. But desire is the enemy, habit is the enemy. They're all the things that keep us moving. Because you can even find yourself knowing you should sit down and do the exercise, but something in your head says, now I'll do it later. So it's all there, it's in front of you. But you don't want to turn it into something to beat you up with. The aim is freedom. So you don't want to end up with a philosophical zealot.
persecuting yourself. The idea is freedom, so gently, regularly have a look. But sometimes you do have to give the beans a bit of a slap. Yeah, that's not hard. Yeah, a good kick up the backside is not hard. That's true. That's true. Okay, but try hard is the good. Next time I see you, I'll ask you about that. <laughs> it's a very interesting one to work with. Now, any more? Just could you expand on the measures for the day? You know, you mentioned one hour meditation. That would be half hour morning, half hour evening. Yep. What were the other things then? Three hours restful activity. Yeah, examples. <laughs> well, study. Or anything that you find restful. Reading. Yes, but it should be particularly restful. It brings your mind to rest. Not just reading a thriller. It would be something that brings your mind to rest. But it could be working in the garden or working in, in a hobby or painting or using your attention in some fine way. It would be engaging in activity that brings you to rest. Rather than escapism, like watching a, a DVD. DVD. And no, like that, that wouldn't that qualify. <laughs> no. It's three hours restful activity, four and a half to six sleep. So you've got a scope there. Four and a half to six. What's the other one? Nine hours work, one hour's meditation, three hours restful activity, four and a half to six hours sleep, and the rest is for recreation and meals. So the recreation could be watching television or whatever. <laughs> it may include a bit of television in your recreation. There's nothing wrong with that, yeah. If you've meditated and you have the nine and the three and a half hours, the old desire for television would even shrink a little. Or the desire for that kind of entertainment would shrink. Mm. But these are not meant to be rigid rules. They're meant to be experimented with. Have a look. And in some cases, there are stages of life where you can't conform to any of those. And their demands are of such an order that you can't do those. So it's not to be rigid. If we're going to go out of here this evening to look at measure, it would be good to go out with a sense of, I would love to discover something about measure. You know, discover something about it, rather than, I'm going to do something. I'm only going to sleep four hours from tomorrow morning on. <laughs> sort of. So how could I persuade my son that it would be good for him? So he has to want to be interested in this. Seriously, he's an adult. He has to want to be interested in the subject for starters. He can't start prescribing prison-like rules in the house. Mm -hmm. But you could, you know, you could encourage him. If it's a topic of rules for discussion, or you could, like I go around my house on the weekend making noise. You know, I go into the rooms and I sing, and <laughs> much to my daughter's horror, she's a beautiful singer, and I am not a beautiful singer. I sing songs purposely with different tunes. So I might sing, Hark the Herald Days are singing to Jingle Bells. <laughs> this poor little girl just goes berserk. <laughs> but it gets her up with a light heart. So you could try that if you want to, make a little noise or singing out of tune. <laughs> Works wonders. may not be useful just to go home with some sort of brew, that's all. But what you're saying is you would actively discourage your children from... Lying in Absolutely. all the long. Oh yes, oh yes. Even teenagers, oh, yeah. you know, that's, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah, you see, you when you sleep, why would you do that? It's different if you're lying there awake and saying, I'm just in here. You would just encourage, as early as practical rising, 
And if they have just got to bed at six, you're not going to wake them up. Wouldn't like to paint the picture of prison. But if children have gone to bed at a reasonable time, get them up is the idea. Children will sleep. Teenagers will sleep for as long as you let them. That's because they're in one of the stages of life where they need sleep. Well, they may not quite need as much as they take. <coughs> it's just not to get caught up on the rule of it. What are you trying to do? You're trying to introduce it in some way that they taste it themselves, where they experience it. You can't force what we're talking about on anyone. You're just encouraging them. I have two daughters who, when they were at school, we lived quite a distance out from the city. And it meant driving into school very early in the mornings because they went to school in Dublin. So that meant getting up at five o'clock in the morning for nearly all of their school years. So from first year right through to when they did their leaving. Those two girls don't know the meaning of sleeping in. And they love it. They just don't know what it is to sleep in. They think it's a nonsense. So they're two very happy adults who don't have that particular issue to deal with. They're very free in themselves with regard to that issue. But surely if the measure is okay or is balanced, the actual time or set of the day that you sleep is relevant. <coughs> well, there is a naturalness. And the activity is balanced. And you're doing and you're resting in the right measure. The clock number shouldn't really matter. Well, no, it does matter. <laughs> it does matter, otherwise you could be there all day. I'm not sure if I'm hearing what you're saying. Do you mean if you go to bed at three or five in the morning or something? No, I'm just meaning if that person has found the measure of the sleep they need, and as long as they're not sleeping and being lazy, as long as then they're active at another point, they have food at another point. The natural measure is four and a half to six hours sleep. It's in there somewhere. It's different for the very young and it's different for the sick and the old. But by and large, for the category in this room, it's between four and a half and six. That's the guideline. But, but you're saying it has to be between certain hours also. Well, you have to discover the measure. But there is the naturalness about the day. There's a sunrise, for example. The wise are up before sunrise. Well, my background would be from farming, and getting up anything after the crack of dawn was considered crazy. <laughs> right. But to no, me, I'd... that didn't translate as no. a good measure either. No, but there is something. There's no tradition, no religious or philosophical tradition that doesn't acknowledge that. So you'd have to examine these things in the light of tradition, or the light of scripture, or the light of farmers. But there's some wisdom in that. It's not just... Well, is that not just practical? Because up during the day, nobody would stay like that may be true as well, but we should examine our behaviour in the light of, you can use the farmers if you want, I'd encourage you to use scripture or the teachings of the wise, who would guide you to get up at the crack of dawn. The ideal time for meditation is in the morning, that sunrise. That's a given. That's the ideal time. It's just that moment before sunrise. Why do the wise give us those instructions? It would be a shame to spend the whole time talking about getting up in the morning. <laughs> you can sleep in bed as long as you like. <laughs> but you can. What this talk is about is trying to discover something about measure for the purpose of being free. Totally free. The wise are happy in all circumstances. They are free in all circumstances. What are they doing that we're not doing? What do they know that we don't seem to practice? What is it? 
it's that we really are interested in. Now, as you go off, what are you going to look at? Are you going to look at anything? Car is good. Okay, that's good. Yeah, just have a look. Getting up when you wake mm. up. No persecution. Just have a look. Mm. What else? Pause. Yeah, introduce the pause into the day, yeah. To look at why the habit seems to overtake me so many times. Yeah. In your life and in the day. It amazes me that every person knows yeah. that they're doing the wrong thing. And they just keep on doing it. But you've got to spot that it's knowledge at the level of information in a way. You need to get that knowledge and make it real, like as an experience. So it's investigate the pattern of behavior, just have a look like you're discussing, but there needs to be more experience of the true, more experience of remembering and then practicing and experiencing. Well, people are happy to pay the price, as you were saying, for what they like to do. They're happy to pay. Well, happy might be a word we just put on it. There's certainly a high level of tolerance for a lot of misery out there. I don't know if I would say they're happy to pay the price. See, we don't have to go outside this room to see this in action. We fool ourselves every day about what we were discussing earlier. We tell ourselves we're going to have a rest at the end, don't we? Mm -hmm. It doesn't come, but we're going to do it again tomorrow. You don't have to go to anyone else. You just look at yourself and see that everybody gets caught in this difficulty, thinking that I'm going to have a rest at the end of something. I'll be happy at the end. Something external will make me happy. If I satisfy that, then I'll be happy. That's common. But it is a misunderstanding and a lack of practice, so we need understanding and practice. You need the two. And if you're meditating, you're 99% there now. That's the master key, really. Just get on with the rest then. You come in one minute, I think you give just a little voice and you say, now, now is the time to stop this, or now is the time to start that. Yeah. They have different activities. Yeah, very good. And I see myself passing it by and Not just now. Just carry on. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. But I'm learning a little bit more to say, I've just got that message and I do stop now. Yeah, very good. That's that voice you like of reason, or that should be listened to and obeyed. You know, now's the time to stop, now's the time to start. You know that when you're out, now's the time to go home. Very few people that doesn't come to. Well, I think I used to think as well that if I heard the little, that little message and then I carried on, I was a good worker then. I was working on past my yeah. end point or something. Going so the I extra mile. Mixed up understanding of that. You know, sometimes it is the right thing to do, stay on and finish something. Sometimes it's very obvious, get up and go home. But then you would know that as well. Did the wise people ever recommend a sense of humour as a way of remedying some things? I think a sense of humour is a fantastic thing. Yes, I've no doubt it is. And to certainly treat life lightly, not to take life so seriously, <coughs> would definitely be instructions from the wise to you know, to have responsibility without the burden, to take part in the whole world and the creation without mm -hmm. the burden of it. 
Like you mentioned uh, Spike Milligan earlier on. Yes. His epitaph. Yes, that's right. You know that? Yes. <laughs> we all know that. Yeah. I told you I was sick. That's right. Well, <laughs> well the Shankar Chari that I referred to earlier describes the whole creation as a play. Right. And it's all held in bliss and causes no stress. That's, if you like, the wise perception of the creation and the world we live in. And that's not quite how we experience it every day. A play held in bliss that causes no stress. Is it? No. So the wise would definitely encourage you to see things play-like, as a play. Now, it doesn't mean to be flippant or casual, but just with that air that this is a play, I'm playing a part in this great big stage. And lightness of touch. You'd associate a lightness of touch with someone who's wise. Have you ever listened to the Dalai Lama? Or ever see him, he's always smiling here to here. No matter what he's talking about. So, you wouldn't associate depression and despondency and darkness and misery with someone who's wise. Would you? <laughs> like if you went to a wise person to talk to them and they started telling you how depressed they were, you would think there's something strange. So, lightness of touch. Okay. okay. Definitely. Brian, could you expand a little bit on that point you made about resolution? What point just exactly? The idea of resolving before you do something. The word resolve means to be complete and totally at rest with the issue in hand. It doesn't mean I'm going to have a go at this and see how I get on. Do you recognize resolution of the type I'm describing? I'm going to try and give up smoke and then I hope I succeed. Do you recognize that kind of half-hearted type? You're not actually resolved in your heart that you are going to do this thing. It's like just speech. And the effect of that is that in a very short time you run out of steam, depending on the issue, but in generally in a short time you run out of steam. or the whole process is very unrestful and you're not at ease with it. So the example I cite is the resolution never to leave my wife. That's a resolve here. That doesn't mean I don't meet all sorts of challenges and arguments and difficulties and heated discussions indeed. But the resolve in the heart, fully at rest and fully and completely at ease with that, means that no matter what happens, you're at rest and resolved to meet whatever happens. And it's just different from not being resolved in your heart and fully at rest with the subject. Is that all right? It's being at rest and then proceeding. Fully. Like no doubt and then proceeding. The other type of resolution is just idle chatter, really. Like I used to make my, well not make, I encourage my children to sit around on New Year's Eve and make resolutions for the year, you know. Should they say anything? And we used to use the school reports as the catalyst for whatever they should be resolving to do. Because the teacher would have said, this chap is a blackguard, or this girl needs to put her socks up in a certain area, or this boy is very cheeky, or... So you would encourage them to make resolutions, but they wouldn't say anything. They were just this chat, not really resolution.
Resolution's more like a decision. True resolution. Firm, clear, absolute decision. Yeah, we often make, at least I do anyway, make resolutions for the future. I'll uh, give up the fags tomorrow type of thing. Yes. Is that a very common enemy of resolution? Fierce or is it a resolution at all? No, it's not resolution. You can't give up smoking tomorrow. You can't diet tomorrow. You resolve now. And you begin now. So all that other, I'll do something tomorrow, is more of the same. It's talk. And if you look at the day, we make a lot of little resolutions every day. When I get home now, I'm going to do this, this and this. Three very important things. And before you know where you are, you've had a cup of tea and you're sitting down in front of a television. And this, this and this will be done tomorrow. Do you recognize that? Or on the weekend, I'm definitely going to tackle X, Y and Z. And it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, come and go and it's, it's not tackled. That would be very common. And it's not planning, it's not resolution, it's just filling the mind full of activity, talking to yourself about what you're going to do. So, Thomas Moore is the best example. He was resolved before he went in to Henry VIII, and he lost his head. He was fully resolved not to bend. He could have come out with his head if he wasn't resolved in himself not to move on the principle. Uh, what are the preconditions to resolution? When you say preconditions, just say a little bit more. Well, prior to action, there is thought. So, you would think out something before you take action, normally. Yeah. I'm sure Thomas More didn't just walk in and... Uh... No. So the, the precondition would be appreciation of the need. So you would have to see and appreciate fully and substantially the need. And it's in fact, it's when the need is really fully seen that resolution actually becomes quite easy. If you don't appreciate the need for something in advance, resolution will be just more of this flimsy, impossible considerations. So it's appreciation of the need. Suppose your wife turned out to be mass moral. Yes. Would you need to look at your resolve again? Well, the resolution is firm here. So it's regardless. And, in other words, I give that as an example because it's crystal clear here that it's absolute and regardless. Come what may. Now, I could bet <laughs> that we won't have the particular difficulty that you're citing. So it just makes it a little hard for me to discuss it on the basis of that difficulty. You know, in reality, you see, if that resolution is made here, what it does is I'm at rest in meeting whatever my wife presents to me. Rather than complaining, criticizing, if she keeps this up, I'm going to get rid of her, <laughs> or looking for a way out, or seeking to attribute cause of misery to, or, you know, suggesting that we give up, or all the other kinds of frivolous suggestions that come in varying degrees depending on what's being discussed. 
What happens here is the resolve is clear, then you meet everything with ease. The resolution must stay despite all the changes. She may change dramatically in the coming years, I have no idea. And the resolution will be to stay regardless of that. Resolution actually equips you to meet all the changes. Like a resolution in business would have you meet all the difficulties with ease. A resolution to work with a particular staff member would open the way up to really work with, for the very best of her ability, that particular person rather than just get rid of her. It actually gives you a sense of strength and energy to proceed and meet whatever it is you have to meet. Is that all right? Good. Did you uh, mention resolution and reason? Is there a relationship between resolution and the light of reason, that it must be under the light of reason? It should be guided by a reason. I mean, everything in the area of mind should be guided by reason. The resolution also includes heart. It includes mind and heart, but certainly guided by reason. So it would be unwholesome to make a resolution that was unreasonable. I'm resolved to take up smoking. It's unreasonable. So all activities in the mind would function better if they were guided by reason, including resolution. Is that all right? Brian, a question there about resolve and need. You were saying that the need has to be met by the resolve. Did you say that? No, there would be an appreciation of need right. would come first. It would be very hard to make a true and firm resolution without a full appreciation of the need. Like if you find that there are issues and there isn't resolve there, you may need to look at what exactly is the need in those particular circumstances. What exactly is the need? Brian, you mentioned at the answer of your lecture that every aspect of life, every action in life is probably by measure. That's a frightening concept. It means that every single thought or deed practically for you should be done in a particular way. Yes. And it's natural. It's not prescriptive. It's not a book of rules. You can't carry them around with you. You can't start pointing the finger at everyone else and saying, do you realize you're not living according to measure? You have to appreciate it and learn it individually. So there is a, a natural measure, a natural order to every action, yes. And it means that if followed, every action can be productive of happiness and rest. But there isn't a corollary there that if you don't follow the measure for each of those actions, that you in some way are penalized for it. You are penalized. <laughs> and the penalty comes instantaneously. If you overeat this evening, you will feel discomfort this evening. It doesn't come next week. If you overdrink this evening, you'll feel the penalty 
this evening and tomorrow morning. If you fill your mind full of worry, you will feel agitated while you're doing it. So you actually apply the penalty to yourself then? The penalty of mismeasure comes with it. You sit down and you're watching TV and it's a cold evening outside and there's a box of chocolates there beside you and you look down an hour later and they're all gone. Have you ever experienced something like that? Okay, well, the penalty is there with it. But for every action, even if it seems very inconsequential one. Yes. But to risk, we say, getting across the road quickly or waiting for the car to pass, that that decision should be based on all as well. Yeah. There's a very nice flag that tells you, there's a, the flag that rises all the time is ease in the body, clarity in the mind and openness in the heart. And if measure is being used, that would be the effect, ease, clarity and openness. If ill measure is being referred to, or measure is just forgotten altogether, then it's tensions, agitations and difficulty, some negativity. You know, the action of coming here this evening, was the drive to this hotel productive of happiness and rest? <laughs> no. Okay. And if you examine it, you'll find there's all sorts of breaches of what we're talking about. Leaving at a, a ridiculous time, trying to do a, a such and such a mile journey, in a ridiculous time. Be all sorts of measures broken. I would have thought it's an encouraging idea that every action can be productive of happiness and rest. Every single action that we engage in all day, every day, could be restful and happy. And if the measures are applied to the action, then the experience is rest and happiness. If we are not applying measure, we become so caught up in the creation that there's very little inclination even to even seek for one's true essence or true self. Now the discovery of one's true self is happiness and freedom. That's what it is. Could I just ask one question, Yes. This is the last the question. Yes. Is desire a very large part of that subject area? Desire is the enemy. So, the wise see the desire and the consequences together. The wise, looking out, see food and the consequences together. We look out and we see food, pleasure, and the consequences are down here somewhere. It's really a seeing clearly, crystal clearly. The desire and the consequences go together. They're not separate. Whereas we see them very like this. Food brings me pleasure. Consequences? What consequences? So we find it a, a battle often. You know, battling will I and won't I? And, and it's just simply a lack of clarity or a lack of reason that these actually do come together. 
as well as being free from desire, who would one want to be free of ego and pride at the same time? Yes. So I'm sure if we stayed here a little longer, we'd end up with quite a list, wouldn't we? Discipline, the key to measure. It is. And discipline in the true sense of the word, discipline, which just means to follow. So if you take this example we're looking at here, the wise will appear very disciplined, but what they're actually doing is simply seeing clearly what's actually happening. We will appear ill-disciplined, and what happens is we just don't simply see the two together. Yes, it would help, absolutely. You need awareness, you need a little discipline, you need resolution. We better stop, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.